Welcome to Practice Freedom. What if you could hang out with owners and founders from all sorts of healthcare private practices, having rich conversations about their successes and their failures, and then take an insight or two to inspire your own growth? Each week on Practice Freedom, we take an in-depth look at how to get the most out of both the clinical side and the business side of the practice, get the most out of your people, and most of all, how to live the healthy life that you deserve. I'm Mark Henderson Leary. I'm a business coach and an entrepreneurial operating system implementer. I have a passion that everyone should feel in control of their life. And so what I do is I help you get control of your business. Part of how I do that is by letting you listen in on these conversations in order to make the biggest impact in your practice and ultimately live your best life. Let's get started. So welcome to Practice Freedom with Mark Henderson Leary. Today's guest, we got Mark Santa, and he is really fun to talk to because his passion for excellence and the business side of healthcare practice is right in line with what we're doing here. As a chiropractor, as a guy who grew the practice and now spends his time coaching chiropractors to run successful, profitable, growable, full life cycle practices that are saleable to, to do all the things we're trying to do. Just got a wealth of experience. So we talked a lot about, you know, in a general capacity this time about being unique, being valuable, understanding that it is a business, can be a business, should be a business. And we really kind of stepped right into one of the more controversial topics in growing a practice and just scratched the surface on practice lifecycle in talking about private equity. And I think there's a dual message throughout our conversation today about being unique and value added and then running it as a business, or maybe even a triple message. The first part, you know, good care, running it profitably. He uses, uses, talks about EBITDA a lot, profit a lot. And my, my fear is that that's going to make it seem like clinical or sterile relative to what we're doing here. But this is really the underpinning of running a good business, period, no matter what the product is you're trying to enable and, and get out there. And then private equity as a way to scale that. And I think we really landed at the end on the idea that you have to have both. You have to have the financial capacity and private equity might be one of the ways to do it and it might be a way to exit. And it pairs up with your vision and your passion for what you're trying to do and how to do that. So take a listen. I hope there's something good and useful for you in the conversation. And I look forward to uh, your feedback. Here's me and Mark. Well, welcome, Mark. It's good to be here with you. You and I have a real passion, truly an experience with what it is to run a healthcare practice as an entrepreneurial business. How did you get there? Mark, thanks for inviting me today. Your audience gets to have Mark squared, two Marks going <laughs> together today, which is cool. So and not only do we share our first name, we also share a passion for the business of healthcare. You know, I started as a chiropractor small town up in Connecticut and ran a successful practice there. We'll talk about that in a bit, but that brought about the opportunity to acquire the coaching company, consulting company who managed my practice. And I bought that company back in 1998. And Mark, I remember the lawyers asking me, what are you buying? I borrowed a million dollars back then. And they're like, there's no assets. There's no capital equipment. You're buying contracts written with somebody else's name on them. What are you buying? And my answer was, guys, I'm buying my way out of Danbury, Connecticut. 
And uh, <laughs> okay, I don't know how wise that was, but I can tell you it, it did get me out of Connecticut, moved uh, immediately down to Miami and took that company that at the time was approximately 75, 80 practices all in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area and brought it national. And now almost 30 years later, we're going strong. We are now involved with private equity and have seen the full arc of what it is to help chiropractors now, literally thousands of chiropractors, uh, medical doctors, PTs across the country, be able to have success in the business of their practice. So that's just a great setting because what you touched on is a several hot buttons, the business side of this, the healthcare, the chiropractic side of this, the scaling side of this. And you said the, the phrase that is so controversial, private equity. Mm-hmm. And so the whole context of this podcast and the series is that we're doing three things in healthcare. We're providing great care. And that's a, an assumption we make, but we also need to care for that. We need to build that muscle. Then we need to run it as a business because we're going to scale and have an impact that is at the proper size to help as many people as possible. We believe that profit follows value. There's a reward for sharing the wealth and the health of our contributions. And then we're trying to live a life. And so I want to get out of Danbury, Connecticut. I want to live the life I deserve. All three of those were hit there. And there's so much in there to be able to do all of that. And private equity, if I were to talk about one subject that is more maligned, there isn't one, right? (laughs) Well, that's not true. Insurance companies. Insurance companies are are the worst. Private equity is the second worst, and they're very close, but they seem to be at odds, both of those. And I'll argue our insurance actually is at odds with those things. But private equity, I don't believe is, at least intrinsically. I believe there is private equity that is at odds with that, but I don't believe is intrinsically absolutely has to be against that. Speak to that, because I think that all the stuff you talked about is really good, and hopefully we'll get in there. But if there's anything that's stopping somebody from listening to the conversation, (laughs) it's like, ah, private equity. I'm turning this thing off. Well, you know, here's the situation, Mark. You mentioned three different goals that we have in practice. Number one, delivering highest quality of patient care. Number two, figuring out an exit strategy. Number three, generating a lifestyle. However, most docs put that in a different order. They do patient care lifestyle and then exit. And the problem is they think about exit when they have three to five years left in practice. And at that point in time, you are scrambling. In particular, if you've had a successful practice, maybe multi-location, maybe multi-physician provider practice that is generating significant revenue, that's got solid EBITDA, the question is, who's going to buy this thing? And you find yourself in the last five years of your career, either holding the note, which is the last thing you want to do, being 60 years old, 65 years old, And then being the bank for the sale of your own practice, which is a very, very precarious financial place to be in, or having a fire sale and selling that asset for a fraction of what it's worth, because there's no individual who can actually come up and be able to buy that practice. And so what we're seeing now is a trend of consolidation. I mentioned chiropractic. We happen to kind of be the newest discovery in terms of consolidation, bringing practices together. The vets, veterinarians have been doing this for years, optometrists, ophthalmologists, dentists, funeral homes, everybody's been doing it. And so finally, they're looking at chiropractic and it's a big game changer for the profession because 
most chiropractors stopped at the lifestyle thing. Okay, this is generating a nice lifestyle. I sent my kids to the schools they wanted to go to. I take the vacation. I have the house, maybe the second house, drive the cars we want. But they're forgetting about this tremendous asset that they've developed. And stewarding that as a fiduciary responsibility as the owner of that entity of treating it as the asset that it is. And so teaching them what EBITDA is. And if your listeners aren't familiar with EBITDA, earnings before taxes, interest, depreciation, and amortization, you may not know that. Your accountant knows it. We refer to it as profit, profitability, right? After all the bills are paid, what's left? You got to know that number. And you want that number to be close to 30%, folks. That's a good, healthy EBITDA because your valuation of your practice, whether it's through private equity, VC, or if it's through private acquisition, you're going to get a multiple of that EBITDA. And so if you don't know what your EBITDA is and you've got all kinds of fluff in there, because in a lifestyle business, there's a whole lot, Mark, as you're aware, that you can put in that's legal. But they're not going to be recurring expenses should that practice be acquired. Call those addbacks. And so having a clear accounting of what's an addback, having a clear P&L statement as though it were a business that you were putting up for sale tomorrow, not in five years. Your book should be ready to go all the time because honestly, you don't know when that knock's going to come so that when they approach you with the valuation, you're ready to roll. You can say, okay, here's where I'm at. Here's what I should be getting. And then you talk about the things like, okay, what's my autonomy? What are you guys going to be expecting of me in terms of staying on? What about the associates and the relationships with the staff that I've developed over the last 15, 20 plus years, right? So those are the questions that you can begin having rather than just getting in nitty and gritty that, oh, well, I've got my wife's Jaguar in there and it probably shouldn't. Yeah. Well, well, two things really jumped out at me from that. One is we really need to talk about project practice life cycle. Yeah. And how that fits into thinking. But that sits on the other side of the second epiphany was I'll call it practice maturity. Mm. And that is a part of life cycle. But why it's relevant, I think, is listening to you talk. I was imagining, well, what kind of healthcare practice are you in? And you're listening to this and and you said lifestyle second. And I don't think that's consistent across all types of practices. I think if you're a surgeon, you might be struggling with the lifestyle. You might have the money, which might not, which isn't the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> if you're in a, a more delegable, less craftsman practice, optometry, chiropractory, where like you can, I don't, I don't want to make it sound commoditized and devalued, but it's a little easier to scale of those, I think, and you get a couple more people in the practice and, it, and there's not as much loyalty to a specific surgeon that you might have in a very, like a plastic surgery, for example, where like the name Agreed, of the doctor sure. is, is really, really well known. So that's going to change the dynamic of how easy it is to get to that life cycle. But practice maturity is a real big part of that because I'm imagining a lot of people listening to this thinking, exit <laughs> and exit, you know, even, uh, I man, I just, I got to figure out how to get these people to stop sucking. <laughs> you know? So you're absolutely right. Everything you said is exactly right. You have to run the business like you're leaving it tomorrow because what that does is it gives you options. 
if you can leave it tomorrow, you don't have to leave it today. You can have a great business that gives you lots of freedom, and that is absolutely where you need to be. But many people listening to this right now, I know, are thinking, are you kidding me? <laughs> so, so take me back to like those early days when you were figuring it out, or how did you figure it out? Well, it's about systems, and if you're going to scale any business, if you're going to run any business successfully, it's about having SOPs and standard operating procedures. And I knew very early on that if I was going to scale and be able to have a team of consultants working under me, that I wanted them teaching the procedures, whether it's coding compliance, marketing, HR, in the way that I wanted it taught. And so we early on built an LMS, a learning management platform that houses all of our modules, self-tests, and is a actual bonafide system that we're actually able to patent. And that was a great thing. One of the organizations that I belong to is called EO or Entrepreneurs Organization, EO. And one of the EO learning events that I went to, the guy came in and said, listen, if you've got a patent, a process, go ahead and patent that process. And it ends up, ended up actually increasing the valuation of my company from being a service industry, which is a consultancy, into a tech platform. And you're talking about a difference of 5x to maybe 8 to 10x when you're talking about a technology platform. So whether you're a doctor in a solo practice, document those SOPs. Make sure that you've got a great, great, great onboarding system for your team. Make sure you've got all of your major procedures whether they're patient intake or dealing with insurance or accounts receivable, that all those things are locked down, nailed down, because that adds great, great, great value in terms of having things not just be in your head and you show up and then let's make it happen. It allows that to be run as a manageable business. I think the people question right now is more important than ever before. In all healthcare, we're paying more. Our salaries are definitely up without a doubt. Insurance reimbursement is down uh, without a doubt. And so that means that as healthcare providers, we need to look for alternative revenue streams or parallel rev revenue streams for the practice that are private pay, that are cash-based services that patients are eager and willing to pay their discretionary income for and not so much being attached. And listen, I have a great, great client who is a pediatric anesthesiologist. So to be a pediatric anesthesiologist, it's like the longest schooling to get there. It's the highest malpractice insurance right, right. that you have. You make a ton, ton of money and he hates the job. He's like, Mark, I hate my job. And so he's opening up IV nutrition therapy uh, centers because he can't. So no matter what level you're at, looking to see what can I do to be able to have autonomy in terms of my future, my income, my lifestyle, I think that's a key thing for uh, healthcare practitioners today. Well, there's that, that touches on another point as well. I think that when you talk about somebody who's highly skilled and highly valuable and plugged into a hospital system or anything like that, it's easy to imagine hating that a lot. 
and being on one hand feeling like a very valuable resource and then being absolutely somehow enslaved to a system that doesn't really care much about you. And so the doors open to entrepreneurial outlets like, you know, that IV clinic. Oh, that's awesome. You know, let's do that. So you can do that now. And like to, to your point, and I guess you always could, but now it's there's models to follow and people are doing it more. And it's, it turns out to be a great path to great outcomes. And so this the idea now is teaching doctors who were kind of, I, I don't know, I didn't go to medical school, so I don't know what they're taught. But from the outside, it looks like they're kind of taught to be, you know, just robots in, in, in lab coats that can do amazing things. And they're all sort of printed the same and they're doctor or whatever. But as it turns out, these are human beings with personalities and passions. And people like Joe Galati, the earlier guest and a friend of mine, he just lets his freak flag fly and he's all about nutrition and he's giving away fruits and vegetables in, in, his, in his liver clinic. And, and it just, it builds a brand and it's cool. And it's like these people should become enabled to show their peopleness. And so, you know, speak to that point, you know, like to be able to do something human and unique and brand yeah, differentiated. Well, with, without a doubt that the box that coding and compliance and documentation and EHR, electronic health records, put a doctor into is very, very stressful. And that's not what you became a doctor to do. You have to be good at it, but it's not what you became a doctor. You became a doctor because you're curious about people. You're curious about what makes people tick and you want to help people. That's basically... Most of us signed up for that. We didn't sign up for all the other stuff. We didn't sign up for the person who we hire after a series of interviews and they come in, they leave after their first day. It's like, what happened to Sally? I thought she was great. I thought she was wonderful. And then she's gone, right? Ghosts you with a text. Or worse is when they quit with a text. I hate that one too. But seriously, it is about doing some soul searching and finding out where your passion is. And I think that this bureaucracy crushes passion and it'll squeeze the passion out of you. And if you're getting at the end of the day and you feel burnt out, you haven't taken that vacation that you ought to be taking because you know you should to recharge your batteries, something might be missing in terms of kindling that fire inside of you because you can be really good at something. You can make money at it. But if you're missing the passion, it's not going to be sustainable. And it's going to be something that is going to be, you're going to get in there and you're going to feel like you're the hamster on the treadmill, right? Just running, 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 running. And then the end of the day, it's like, okay, next day, right? Do it again. So I think that means taking some time and as doctors and entrepreneurs, we're always concerned about doing, right? Doing, doing, doing. We don't like not doing and sitting down and meditating about what my passion is, what sparks my joy is not something we do very easily. So I would definitely recommend investing some time in getting that mindset screwed on so that you can make tactical decisions that support your overall strategy of having a fulfilled life. As you're talking, I'm thinking that I would love to help teach entrepreneurial doctors, give them the power to sort of take over, not the world, but the healthcare portion of it, because there's a tyranny and I don't want to be, I'm not that guy. <laughs> you know, it's, I'm not that guy, but I do, we, 
it's easy to agree that there's a lot of dysfunction in healthcare, a lot of waste. And, you know, I know so many doctors who are really great people, really creative and really leaving money on the table. And I, and I mean literal money, but also just value could do great stuff. And what we see is that when somebody gets creative with healthcare offering, they can provide retail price offerings that are cheaper than insurance-based <laughs> offerings that are 10 times easier to buy, 100 times more valuable, and not that unaffordable to at least the middle class. And so uh, there's so much waste. If we can continue, if we can build the culture and we can inspire lots of entrepreneurial healthcare providers in any facet to like, you know, go do something cool and creative and see what you can do with it. Man, we can absolutely change the world, like in a massive way, massive way. I totally, totally agree. And the system as it's built right now is for sick care. It's really not for yeah, health for sure. care. And it's there for a backstop when something really goes wrong. But we don't really do anything to keep people healthy. And that's a massive market. I think also one of the things that I'm truly, truly passionate about is interdisciplinary collaboration. That for too many years, we have practiced in silos where the orthopedist and the physical therapist and the chiropractor or the acupuncturist or, or the PCP, they don't communicate with each other. And Having now the opportunity through technology to have transparent medical records, to be able to really house this database of information and mine it for quality parameters, I think that's a huge, huge thing. And so moving beyond the box that we've been put in and seeing how can we collaborate to deliver a level of care maybe that somebody hasn't thought about before, right? That's the aha moment with wow, I'm really, really good at this, but I could also bring that extra juice. Like you said, whether it's serving fresh fruit in your medical practice or doing functional medicine or nutritional therapy, those kind of walls, the sooner they can go away, the better. It's not going to happen through insurance. I could tell you that. That is absolutely pharmaceutically driven will continue to be driven by the pharmaceutical industry and will move in a glacial pace in terms of true health. But if you're interested in your own health and the health of your patients, you want to look outside of that for health and wellness care and not just sick care. So I'm kind of at a, it crosses in my mind. I want to keep going down this path of what it is to get to more proactive care and what does it look like to be truly healthcare and health care oriented. And I think it's a deep well, and it might even be a subject of a different, an entirely different podcast episode to really unpack that because I think it's fraught, totally fraught. And I, having been in a business that was intended to be proactive instead of reactive, it is maddeningly difficult to build a business that really truly does that. And so I, I want to maybe, maybe we'll talk about that, but I'm more want to say like we've established clearly that you want to create care and we're on the same page with entrepreneurial. I want to go back to private equity and funding. Yeah. And what does it do? And how do you, let's, let's talk about how that can play a positive role in creating good outcomes. Mm -hmm. So private equity is a aggregation or accumulation of EBITDA. It's driven by EBITDA. So the goal in a private equity fund is to get up to about $10 million in aggregate or accumulated EBITDA from practice acquisition. 
once you reach that 10 million level, they can launch, they can recapitalize with the banking system, they can bring in other partners. The ultimate goal in a roll up is what it is called. The ultimate goal in a roll up is to hit 30, 35, 40 million dollars in aggregate EBITDA. Once that's done, now the valuation of that aggregate NUCO is at 12 plus X. And so the magnification process becomes very, very significant. So PE is about EBITDA. Now, getting involved with the right private equity company is everything. And that's a real question of philosophy. So we can drive EBITDA in a practice by looking for efficiencies, things that we can do better together than we can do individually. So think of the pain points in your practice, insurance billing, collections, et cetera, your electronic health record, human resources, absolutely. Marketing, absolutely. All the things that you could do if you had a pot of $10 million versus your own marketing budget for your own practice or how you have to deal with HR in your own practice. So those are great ways to drive efficiency immediately. I know some private practitioners who are paying eight, nine, 10% for their billing services, outsourcing their billing services. You take that in-house, you can automatically throw another 10% to the bottom line. So that's a really big deal. So that's a big thing in terms of are they going to squeeze me for production? Are they going to try to squeeze EBITDA, push more EBITDA out of this practice by paying my people less, changing things up, making it different? And my model in private equity is no fast moves. These are, I want successful practices, well-run practices that can benefit from efficiencies, but are not interested in like, okay, I'm done. I'm out of here. Save me. Take this off my hands. That's not the type of an acquisition that private equity wants. They want somebody who's going to stay there, man the ship, keep that thing going. And hopefully not only will you get the second bite at the apple when the, when the uh, NUCO sells, but the private equity roll-up sells, but you might have to, the opportunity to sign up for a second round because that practice has now been acquired. You may be done if you want, but so there are docs who go through one and two and three rounds of acquisition, PE acquisition, but it's about how are they going to treat you? How are they going to treat your staff? What kind of a say are you going to have in terms of patient care and the procedures that are being delivered? Those are really, really key things to, to ask upfront. Yeah. So I, I think the foundation that is fair to call out is that it's private equity, meaning there's money that wants to make money out of the money. That's it. And so that's true, but that's not the only part. Yep. So I think you do have to bear in mind that there is a time factor. And my observation across industries is they're vastly different, probably less vastly different with inside healthcare. I suspect that from what I know with the private equities that I've been exposed to in the healthcare world, they are 
pretty predictable. Here's the money. Here's the valuation arbitrage. We're talking about that every time we get to a certain level of revenue, our valuations multiply. They get higher because as we scale, people become, we become more valuable on a per dollar basis. And there is something associated with timeline of entry and exit. There is both. Absolutely. That's generally the formula. Outside of the industry, I've definitely seen ones with widely long timeframes with no specific end date in mind. We're going to run it and create options. I think that's probably less common in healthcare space. They're probably really very institutionally like, look, we, we got a five-year attention yeah, time horizon. Exactly. And it's four, written right Usually there. four to five, six years is what they're looking at. So, but you're right though. So there's a way to do it. And the philosophy of how we're doing this, because I've seen some really bad, I say bad, my judgment is it's poor brand stewardship, poor process consistency, not setting the organizations up for success, hitting these multiples through cutting only. Because you can do that. Like that is a real thing. You really can improve enterprise value and profitability with with a hatchet. You can. (laughs) And so many people do. And so you, that is where private equity gets its reputation. And there's so many people who just seem smart, look smart because they got the money to go with it. But it's really true that these are human beings and you can talk to them and not all of them lie. Some of them do and some of them lie to themselves and they don't think they're lying to you <laughs> and they don't and they maybe overestimate their particular influence relative to the overall ownership and what they're going to do as an owner, as an owning company. But speak to the, you know, you're talking to, when you talk to the very best in private equity, what are they saying that people like really, that makes them sort of make you feel like, hey, this is a force for good. They're not on the dark side. Yeah. I want to know, are you going to put together an advisory board and who is that advisory board made up of and what are they going to be advising in terms of so that I know that if I've got somebody who's got a, a significant stake here, that they do have a say. And I'll tell you, most docs and, you know, they're docs who own multiple units, multiple locations. So we're talking six, 12 locations. That doc, okay, they don't want to just sell and be done. They've got some secret sauce there that can absolutely be distributed among everybody else. And so having some of those really smart guys and gals be at that table in terms of advising where we're going I think that's really, really key. So I want to know that these are folks who have a respect for the industry, uh, that they have a track record in the industry, that this is not their first time at the rodeo, and that their due diligence process is more than just numbers on paper. If somebody is going to be acquiring you and they don't even want to meet with you or come and visit your practice and have dinner with you and maybe your family, this might not be the right fit, right? And I understand that there's all kinds of different deals out there, but I have a a saying is that you can't do good business with bad people. So it's about people and getting to know the people, getting to understand what their vision is and making sure you're in alignment because you don't want to be four years into having been acquired and saying, I hate my life. I don't want to go to work another day. So those are all really important things. So the economics in terms of being able to get value for the asset that you've created over the past couple of decades, 
it's hard to generate that type of value without having some sort of private equity institutional money behind that type of an acquisition. And so you want to weigh the different options. You got to know what your number is, right? And we talk about in terms of retirement or when you're done, you know, what's your done number? How much do you need in the bank to generate passive revenue, right? To throw off revenue, to be able to fund the lifestyle that you've gotten used to for however many years that you have left. And so you need to know that number. And for a lot of docs, they're going to be very surprised how big that number is because they live mm-hmm. right, right. really pretty well. And to not have to go into the office and make that, you got to have six, seven, eight, nine in the bank. And you know that's not so easy to do on selling if you don't do that in a private equity type of a situation. So also the private equity, that speaks to the fact that there's money at the table, but there's different operating structures, right? So let's talk a little bit about maybe your specific experience, because it's one thing for it to have a new ownership that says, oh, we got more money for you and higher standards of excellence. So we can invest in certain things and you're going to have to be more profitable. But when you say roll up, you know, that's a that's a good thing to, to talk about. It's one thing to just get more money. But but if there's what are we collecting here and is it turning into one centralized brand? Are you falling under a holding company with different brands or are you falling into one parent brand, a parent company where there's a hierarchy and a regional and we're doing cross sell and we're doing a whole integrated approach? Yeah. And speak to that a little bit. So a roll up typically has a double payout for the acquisition. So you're going to be paid a certain percentage, a certain X of EBITDA upfront. And then you're going to retain equity in the roll-up. So you'll actually become a partner in the roll-up. And why that's important, I mentioned the second bite at the apple before. Second bite at the apple is when the roll-up sells and the X goes from uh, six or seven X for the upfront EBITDA to, let's say you kept in 20% of the value as equity in the roll-up, that exits at 10 to 12x. So the multiple on the second bite of the apple is really key. So it would be great if you can have a private equity situation where you actually become a partner in that roll-up. That's a big deal. In terms of branding, my personal approach to that is start local, move to regional, and then do national. So as I said before, no sudden moves, especially in the chiropractic industry. If you've been going to Jones Chiropractic Center for 15 years, and all of a sudden it's Apex Chiropractic, like what happened to Jones, right? And so it's a high-touch, high-tech business. And so we want to make sure that we maintain local branding. So it could be Jones Chiropractic, an affiliate of Apex, right? Mm-hmm. To begin mm-hmm. with, eventually, after some years' time, you can do regional branding for marketing purposes, regional branding, because it does build value in terms of the final exit. But that should be in a stepwise incremental fashion. But operationally, there's shared services. There's a central mothership of here's where billing comes from. Central and, mothership and, with a C-suite. There's a CEO, COO, CFO who actually runs that roll up, runs that company. And then there are experts underneath it that deliver all of those services 
with efficiencies. And do you see any variations on that? Or is that just the kind of the, That's the pretty way it's standard. done right now? Yeah, pretty vanilla. Okay. Well, I think we've covered a lot. What did we miss? Well, I'm thrilled. I think if we can get docs to begin thinking of their practice as an asset earlier rather than later, if we can get them really looking at that P&L, having it clean and shiny for whatever the outcome is going to be, whether it's private sale or some sort of a private equity roll-up, being sure that we're looking at that profitability and keeping in mind that we really want to be generating 30% of EBITDA. If we're not doing that, what can we do to improve that right now, right away today for us? So that's a, I think that's a great aha, I think, for a lot of docs. And then the second thing is, yeah, I mean, don't forget what got you in the business in the first place. Go back to the passion, right? See what stokes your fire. If you had another five years left in your practice, how can you make these really glorious and really fun? So you get in there in the morning and you're joyful because guess what? Patients feel that, right? Your staff feels that. They stay because of that and not necessarily just because of the paycheck. So finding your passion and following it and stoking it, I think that's a big deal. So I want to unpack that a little bit. I don't want to, I don't want to quite close on that. There's in my mind, if we stoke the entrepreneurial passion, we'll create unique value, right? Sure. Jones has got like it's Jones or it's, you know, like Joe Galati's liver thing. You know, it's like it's Dr. Galati and all the crazy thing. If he says, I want to scale this and bring in private equity, that sounds like a recipe for erasing the uniqueness. Actually not. I mean, to do that properly, you don't want to get rid of Joe Galati. You want to make sure that you've got the systems in place so that Joe lives on and can be scaled without losing the Jonas of that practice, because that's the secret sauce. That's what makes it great. That's what takes a practice from one location to three locations to 12 to 20 locations and still has them all maintaining a practice culture, a energy, a vibe when you're in there that is people focused, that you feel great going to, and you feel glad paying your money to go to. And so- Right. Okay. So th that helped me a lot. So from what you're, and I've seen this, but now it helped me understand your perspective on this. You're growing to practice. It's very cool. It's, you know, it's Joey's amazing practice of whatever healthcare. And we're thinking, you know, we can make an impact and I need some money to do that. And we want to be regional. So you do go to private equity and they say, absolutely. Here's how this goes. We build a business plan. We're going to expand to the to edge to edge in Texas. We're going to have 14 locations or 42 locations. And when, and we provide shared services and it's part of our portfolio or it's Greenfield. They're like, we're brand new private equity and we, there's nothing else in the portfolio. We're going to try to, we're going to give you the money and we're going to maybe do some acquisitions in the region and convert them to your format. I suppose. But the idea is don't show up uninspired because if you do, you will be assimilated yeah. <laughs> and it might be hard to establish that you've improved outcomes if you're not showing up with, hey, I got a proven concept. It's high value. I'm passionate about it. The patients love it. And we just need to do more of it. And then you can lead the private equity into something good. And I have seen that kind of thing unfold. And I have seen that thing, that kind of thing get unwound. I've seen the original passion 
of an organization go out the door with the original founders and the private equity is money driven and the middle, the remaining people didn't carry the passion and they were not able to stand up for the vision. So that is part of some of those cautionary tales, but that is the best outcome you're describing. Do try to invent and invest in something great and private equity could be one of the tools to allow you to scale. Absolutely. Awesome. That was helpful for me to crystallize the whole conversation into one thing. So given that, what's your passionate plea to entrepreneurial healthcare providers these days? Uh, my passionate plea is break, break down the silos, get out of the silo, mental silo, silo of your practice, silo of thinking, and begin to be creative and interact and work with the different providers in your community to develop healthcare, a healthcare system versus the sick care system that isn't functioning, that isn't working, and it's not going to continue on forever into the future. We got to get people healthy, keep them healthy, and motivate them to stay healthy. And so my passion very much is on interdisciplinary collaboration. We are smarter together. You know, I like to say there's not one of us that's as smart as us, as smart as all of us when we're together. Right. So take a take a doc out to lunch. Take a young doc out to lunch. Get outside of the old routine that you're in. Break it up a little bit. See what's out there. It's exciting. I think there's so much power here. You can innovate. You can do things. You can take the friction out of what it is to be taking care of people. And, you know, I think the cynicism you just got to watch it. I mean, if you've been in this in the business long enough in, it, to be bitter and frustrated, that would just make you normal. But I'm hoping you can shake some of that off and realize that people are doing great things by taking some risks. And hopefully you can be inspired to do the same thing as well. Well, awesome, man. So if somebody wants to follow you, continue the conversation, know what you're up to, how does somebody find you? Well, you know what? The great thing about having the name Mark Santa, S-A-N-N-A, is I'm the only guy on Google, <laughs> Mark Santa. So you can link to me. Actually, there's one guy, he's chief of staff of security for Hyatt Hotels, Mark Santa. Well, there's only one Mark Santa and you can LinkedIn me, you can Google me, you can Twitter me, you can anything me and I'm there. My company's called Breakthrough Coaching. You can do mybreakthrough.com and find me there, but just put Mark Santa into the Google bar and all kinds of cool stuff will come up. Awesome. Well, look, man, I'm grateful for the time together. We'll have future conversations, I'm sure, as we unpack specific topics and go deeper and deeper into the subject and all the things that we're doing on this. There's so much to mine here and so many obstacles to overcome. And I think we'll all be making some epiphanies together in this process. So that's our time for today. If you like the podcast, of course, if you like this, give some feedback, share it with your friends who think this can be valuable. And if you hated it, share that with us too. And I'm not supposed to say to, to give us the negative feedback because it messes up the rating with the five stars and all that. But I, I just need to know. If you didn't like it, contact me. Let me know. And if we can help in some way, if anything didn't make sense, please reach out and let us know that as well. We will catch you next time on Practice Freedom with me, Mark Henderson Leary. <laughs>